you wanna learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7, Brave New Radio. We got managers, producers, record labels, concert promoters galore. Wednesday at 8 p.m. Yeah! Yeah! Music Biz 101 and more live from Nashville, Tennessee, the Boy. volunteer state. Make sure you go to our website, musicbiz101wp.com. Sign up for that newsletter. You need to sign up for our newsletter. Follow us on the Instagram, the Twitter, the Facebook, at musicbiz101wp. And of course, we have a podcast, which many of you are listening to right now, mm-hmm. and you found it at iTunes or SoundCloud, Music Biz, Ampersand, 101, no, Music Biz 101, <laughs> Ampersand, more, Music Biz 101 and more. I'm your professor, David Kirk Philp. Who are you? I am Stephen Marconi. Dr. Esteban. Yes. And so as you listen, you'll hear a student, you're going to hear a great, great person, but this was a summer class because of William Patterson, the university. So we want to thank Ashley Weltner, who's been our engineer for all of our radio shows yes. over the past year, and she hooked us up with this tremendous technique of recording that we're doing right now, and we should give thanks, so we put our... Uh, hands together, legs together, eyes closed, heads down. Thanks to the folks at Van Dyne Bruno Inc. and White Hat Management with artists like Charlie Puth, Dave Matthews, and Kith. There's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to VB. CPA.com when you are ready. And we should all give thanks to Christine. They. Oi, a wealth manager and the president of. <laughs> Oi, they manage. <laughs> Oi, they wealth management. Christine has helped many of our professionals at William Patterson the University to manage their investments and plan out for their retirement. If you're looking for some guidance on how to plan for your retirement, or if you have any questions on anything from investments and portfolio management to insurance retirement planning, give Christine a call at, repeat after me, 732. 732. 455. 455. 1510. 1510. You can also email her, Christine at Oi. They wealth. Com. And take the last oi off for savings. That's right. Many shout outs to many different people, but don't forget managing your band's sixth edition. By the time you hear this, it has been out for a year, but like fine wine, it's aging beautifully. Mm-hmm. It's a book, it's in color, it's got glossy pages. And only a few mistakes. Very few mistakes. <laughs> so you're going to love it. And always contact, contact us. Again, go to musicbiz101wp.com, and that's where you can find everything out. Again, big thanks to the Music Biz Association for having us here. Yes. And now on to La Interview. Ooh. I got to go! Yeah. Music Biz 101 and more. Here we are. I'm your professor, David Kirk. Philp, and along I with am your professor, Steve Marconi. Dr. Esteban Marconi here. Yes, right. And we have student co-host Matthew Kerr. Hello, yeah. all. Hello, all. Here we are, Matthew. Yes, I, 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 I t- teach Matt in an MBA class. It was an entrepreneurship class. And last week in the class, he gave a presentation. Marconi was there. And he's just a regular American guy from New Jersey. <laughs> no. And he starts giving the presentation. All of a sudden, he had this strange <laughs> accent. And he started yeah. talking like this. Yeah, I don't have the British accent. <laughs> he started See, I didn't know he was from. Yeah, I'm editing this in post. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you talking with the British accent? But it was, it's, a, it's a reflex action. Um, sometimes, if I, if I get nervous or whatever. 
Really? Yeah, sometimes sometimes it'll just come out, and it just makes me. But it it helped me flow with the presentation. Yeah. So. Right. Probably, that was probably made you sound smart too. Yes, <laughs> that did help. No, yeah. it did. It really did. It was really. But we did fail him. Impressive. Because <laughs> we felt he was a phony. So 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 anyway, Matt's getting his MBA yes. in music and entertainment management. Correct. And Matthew would like you to introduce us to Matthew, who is our guest for this particular episode of Music Biz 101 yes. and more on Brave New Radio. Yes. So we are with Matthew Adele, current chief digital officer. Or Chief Operating Officer, I'm sorry. Chief Digital Officer. Oh, it is? That's right, yeah. Oh, Chief Digital Officer of Native Instruments, former CEO of Beatport, also had positions with Amazon, Napster, had his own indie label, Wax Tracks. He's, he's been around for quite a good amount of time, so we are definitely looking to get some valuable insight out of this interview today. I, uh, I love that introduction. I worked at Wax Tracks. It was not mine. I want to clarify to the departed Jim and Danny who owned it, uh, two people I loved very much, uh, wherever they are listening in. Um, I'm not trying to take credit for what they did. <laughs> That's okay. No, I did own a label. I left there to, and started a house label in Chicago, an independent house label. Um, about four years after house music really got started in Chicago, and it was funny. Four years into house music, I felt like I was getting to it late. Yeah. Um, uh, but now, so much time has passed. People look back and think of my labels being sort of part of the the early scene. Mm. Actually, that was one of that was actually one question I had because I stumbled across like an older interview that you did, and someone had talked about you were doing a fan magazine, I think, called Reactor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a uh, very close friend of mine from grade school. Uh, he and I, I ran from my, my dining room, I ran my record label, uh, which was the, the house, house music, and he ran Reactor, uh, the publication, which was, as far as we know, the first widely distributed rave fanzine in the country for young people out there. We used to have to print our words on this thing called paper and then <laughs> distribute the paper around. I know. Huh. What is I don't know, know what yeah. that is. Uh -huh. I don't understand. Uh, and uh, we, uh, my, my, my friend David Prince uh, created Reactor Magazine. He works for a little, little thing called Coachella now. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he was throwing raves in Chicago back in the day. And uh, we put out that uh, publication. I wrote for it as well. And I will say now, as a 50-year-old man, I am glad how much that magazine predates the internet, because if you look for it, you can find a couple of covers of the magazine that people mm -hmm. have printed and shared. Uh, but uh, mercifully, no one has actually uh, digitized the entire magazine, because the fact of the matter is it was largely a fanzine about uh, taking LSD. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's okay. In that same interview, though, uh, this is this is actually just a question out of curiosity before we get down to like the nitty gritty. Um, you had also uh, said that uh, KLF was one of the major innovators in the dance scene yeah. um, a long time ago. Yeah. I was curious if you had any uh, input as to who today might be the modern day KLF who's changing like dance music culture or like changing the growth curve or what have you. Well, I think. To me, the KLF are kind of the Beatles of uh, electronic dance music. They didn't invent it. They weren't 
the first by any stretch of the imagination. The Beatles certainly didn't invent skiffle or rock and roll or rockabilly. Uh, but the Beatles in their short career kind of did everything that rock and roll was capable of doing for the next mm -hmm. 25 years. And uh, in my mind, Helter Skelter by the Beatles is the first metal record. Totally, uh, totally. And, and the KLF also, in a very short period of time, did uh, great ambient work, great trip-hop work, great trance work. Uh, some of those records sound like EDM before EDM you know, existed. Uh, and I would, I would have to say I am probably too old and too disconnected uh, to see that clearly right now. I would have to ask some younger, cooler person who works for me where, what that what that is now. Mm -hmm. I, I don't understand all right. these Lil rappers. They confuse me. <laughs> all right. Um, right. Uh, I have to live with that. Let me ask you a question about, about age yeah. right there. Because you and I, I'm, I just turned 50 You look well. great. You look amazing. Thank you. Um, later on, we can hug. Uh -huh. Both need glasses. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what, what month was your birthday? March. Oh, I was April. Huh? March 1968? Yep. I was April 1968. Mm -hmm. There mm -hmm. we go. I like to think, know that my birthday aligned quite nicely with Nixon uh, leaving. Uh, that's right, uh, yeah. He left in April. It was March. Oh. It was March, I think. Okay. I think it was March when he was impeached. Okay, yeah, August, actually. August is when Nixon uh, okay. uh, flew and waved. <laughs> Tricky dick. But um, my question, so you were talking about how you feel that you're, I don't want to say out of touch, I'm trying to mm -hmm. say, but, but it, your, your place in that market that mm -hmm. you were part of for so long mm -hmm. is different now. Yeah. Um, what... Was there a point where suddenly you realized I'm not at the pulse, the same pulse as I was 20 years ago, for example? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I was so aware of it that I think I felt it slipping. There mm -hmm. wasn't a moment when I realized right. it, was, it was gone, but I don't go out like I used to. You know, uh, being single mm -hmm. is, a, I think, uh, something that really drives you to, if you're single and you don't have kids, right, you go out. Yeah, that, yeah, and, right. and if you don't go out, you can't really have a feel, you know, for what's going on. There are still new records I love that are really impactful and special to me. But in terms of guesstimating their, their sociological impact that they're going to have, uh, I, I'm not that in touch anymore. Mm -hmm. And just like any curmudgeon old man, you know, I see some things that I, that I just simply don't understand, but I can see are really important to other people. Mm. Um, but having been working in record stores for a really long time, and uh, in my mind, uh, really all the way up through my career in Beatport, everything was a record store, mm. uh, including Beatport. And uh, I've always wanted to help people find the record they want to listen to. Um, I learned very early on working in a physical record store that you make a sale by helping someone find the record they want. And you, you try to understand what they like so that maybe you can rec recommend a second purchase, you know, mm -hmm. while they're there. Um, and I never, and I learned this from this guy, Rick Addy, who's still alive and I love very much, who's the manager of a record store I worked at when I was a kid. And uh, he taught me that the, the, the best record is the record someone else wants that brings them joy. Mm -hmm. um, I don't care if I'm selling you back then a Whitney Houston record or a Michael Jackson record or the exploited the punk band 
um, so long as it makes you happy. And I try to remind people I work with all the time in, in music programming that most people have way more important things going on in their lives than knowing what the cool new hip thing is this week. Mm -hmm. They have kids to take to soccer practice. They have uh, uh, bills to pay. Mm -hmm. And if a Britney Spears record or, uh, oh, for God's sakes, the soundtrack to Greatest Show on Earth is what makes them happy, then that's the best record in the world right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You must yeah. have loved High Fidelity. Um, I've never seen it. Really? Really? Um, I've read the book. Uh, the, uh, uh, I grew up with John Cusack. Oh, you did? Yeah, I'm from Evanston, Illinois. Okay. Oh. And the, the DVD Vincentis, who produced the movie, so was a, one of my best friends from second grade on. Um, he also later in life made that OJ uh, miniseries. Uh, mm -hmm. last year, which is great. Oh, yeah. It's very good. Yeah. And uh, I've never seen it. Uh, they filmed it near where I lived in Chicago, mm -hmm. and the book really resonated with me. And they actually uh, made, the, you know, the book takes place in the UK, and it has some very specifically European things yeah. going on in it. Especially but, musically. Yeah, like but the guys, re, you know, repositioned it in Chicago, and uh, they were heavily influenced by the record store I worked at in high school. In fact, you heard me mention this guy, Rick Addy, who was the manager of the record store I worked at as a kid. Mm -hmm. And uh, they hired Rick to be a consultant mm -hmm. on, that, on that film, um, which I really admire that mm -hmm. they did that. So I've never seen it. How I think you, partially because I was worried that, they, that it makes fun of me. Um, which part? Any of it. I've never seen character? it, but they made they made Gross Point Blank later. I don't know if yes. you've ever seen that movie. Which yes, is a, an amazing um, movie. And yeah. it, it, Gross Point Blank ends with a high school reunion, and all the names of the characters in that are the names of real people from high school, and they are directly making fun of people we grew up with right. in that entire scene. So were you in there? Uh, no, mercifully. No. Um, but uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure... Uh, I would see it now and then, and I would enjoy it. I've just never, never gotten around to it. Because the great thing about Gross Point Blank, then, because came out, I think, around 96, and the whole thing was 10 years, 10 yeah. years, because mm -hmm. you know, they graduated in 86. Yep, so exactly. John Cusack is about he, 50 as well. Then. Yeah, he one year older, I think. He was in the graduating class okay. of 85. Okay. Yeah. You should see High Fidelity. Yeah, I'll you get, should, a, you I'll should get just, around to it. You should just see day. it, because it's, yeah. it's, especially now, because it's a piece of time, mm -hmm. and, it, and it reflects a piece of time that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. It's, mm -hmm. it's before Napster, which yeah. where you worked. You know, yeah. it's before the loss yeah. of brick and mortar music in that community. Mm -hmm. We have di the community is different today oh, than yeah. it was then. And you watch that; it's a very romantic yeah. part. I mean, that whole part in the music store is very romantic to that era. I think they're getting ready to make a TV show. Really, High Fidelity, the TV show is coming. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Ah. So talk to me about uh, Beatport, well, uh, how it started and what where well, I, it is now. I didn't start it. No, but I'm um, sure you no. Uh, it was founded by uh, Jonas Temple and Eloy Lopez, two DJs in Denver. Mm -hmm. They eventually brought on a friend and colleague, Brad Woolier, who became a founder as well. And they were, uh, and I, I uh, if they can hear me, I'm sorry I'm telling their story, but it's really their story. They were, they had started DJing digitally uh, had stopped carrying around vinyl, but were basically still ripping CDs and vinyl to a computer source. Mm -hmm. they, and they, they started building Beatport before there was an iTunes. Hmm. When they first went to labels to try to convince labels to be a part of Beatport, 
they had to explain to people what it is even was they were talking about. Yeah. Um, and can you explain it? Because there might be, I'm sure there's some listeners. Sure, Beatport is the world's largest seller of dance music to DJs. So mm -hmm. it was an iTunes download store for <clears throat> DJs. And what makes DJs unique is they need a higher quality audio file than was available uh, at the time uh, because it's going to be played on a big loud sound system. Uh, at the time, does everyone remember DRM? Mm -hmm. um, Digital rights management. Yeah, the, so there was copy protection on the files you bought from iTunes that would prevent the music from playing in another player. Yeah. So that also meant that you couldn't DJ with the stuff you bought from iTunes because the DRM Correct. prevented it from being played back in environments DJs needed. Well, the workaround was you burn the music to a disc, then rip the disc back and die. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, right. And, that's, and so they saw this opportunity to offer DRM-free, high-quality audio files for DJs. And uh, additionally, the indies at that time, especially in dance music, hadn't penetrated those distribution systems very well. So they really were at the right place at the right time with the right idea. And then additionally, DJs need a browsing mechanism for music that's totally different than consumers. DJs need a record to play tomorrow night at work. Mm -hmm. for their fans, mm -hmm. which is completely different than what do I want to listen to right now or what do I want to buy as a gift. Um, also, in, in independent music, you know, uh, labels mean something to people. No one in the known universe woke up this morning and said, man, I really want to listen to that new release from UMG, no matter what it is. Mm -hmm. No one. But people, <laughs> people do wake up and think, I want to hear what Tool Room put out. Back in the day, people might have thought, I want to hear what Wyndham Hill put out in the, in the mm -hmm. new age market. Right. Uh, and in dance music, people very much follow labels, and so they mm -hmm. built this system that really allowed that to work. I was at Napster, uh, where I worked at Legal Napster, I like to remind everybody, mm -hmm. and I got a call one day from a headhunter, and we had just sold Napster to Best Buy. I had just gotten my first paycheck with Best Buy logo on it, mm -hmm. and I guarantee you that was a moment I thought, maybe it's time to move on. <laughs> and uh, they were great people, uh, but I just knew that, you know, where things were headed. And I got a call from a headhunter, and the headhunter said, would you ever consider moving to Denver? And I, I blurted out, only to work at that company, Beatport. Have you heard of Beatport? And it turned out they were calling from Beatport looking for a chief <laughs> operating officer. And I went to be the COO. I moved to Denver, uh, which was a big change for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't like the outdoors. Uh, <laughs> and... Um, uh, I went there, and uh, within less than a year, I became the CEO. The founders went on to do other cool stuff. They owned an ad agency that was the premier advertising agency in, in Denver, so they had many other things to do. Uh, and I was there about six years, and we sold it to SFX, a big yeah. conglomerate. And uh, the day my contract ended, I moved on, mm -hmm. which gonna, happens. I was so, going to bring up the SFX well, part, I'm, because that's, yeah, that's that what figured I'm waiting we were going to go. Yeah. <laughs> So now what's happening? Because obviously SFX went bankrupt. They sold their, beat, their interest in Beatport. Well, I'm not a bankruptcy attorney, and I haven't been there. But from, from what I read and from what I know from talking to really great people who still work there is, SF, well, SFX went bankrupt. Right. Uh, SFX. Uh, uh, and it became, the assets became a new company called Livestyle. Mm -hmm. uh, that's based in LA. They still own a bunch of festivals. They still own Beatport. Uh, and actually a dear, dear old friend of mine, uh, Rob, uh, who I've known for a gazillion years, uh, has become the CEO of Beatport now. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, uh, I think they're back on the uh, path to really uh, 
meeting the, the Beatport vision uh, mm -hmm. after the distraction of becoming part of a, a large conglomerate that really didn't understand the value proposition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So after that time was when you uh, started Metapop, I believe? Yeah, shortly thereafter. I left SFX and I took about a year off um, uh, uh, to smoke pot and play video games. Uh, I killed about 56,000 zombies. Uh, and uh, then I decided I wanted to start Metapop. I had uh, wanted to help the industry and creators figure out how to deal with bootleg remixing, which is a really common behavior, and it's also an art form that I really enjoy, mm. and it's a hobby I partake in. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, a year after we officially launched, I worked on it for almost two years with my partner, Michael Mookin, who is the developer. Mm -hmm. uh, we, uh, we worked on it behind the scenes, and then we launched, and a year after we launched, we uh, sold it to Native Instruments. Uh, and uh, that's how I became the chief digital officer. And my partner, Michael Mookin, is still the CPO of Metapop. It's a, and it's a, a business unit within the, the departments and divisions I run at Native Instruments now. Yeah, I was going to mm. say, they're running a remix contest for Native Instruments right now. Or yes, remix I hope so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Last I checked, it was still up because the deadline's the 24th. Good. So by the time this goes up, it'll probably be over, but... Um, but yeah, so Metapop was hosting a remix contest. I know that you can remix the uh, step play play sessions, I believe it is, mm -hmm. for for that contest as well. Uh, there was one question I had regarding Metapop, um, which sort of coincides with a deal you made with uh, Shazam while back at Beatport. Actually, um, you had made a deal, as I understand, to uh, get the Beatport tracks onto the Shazam service. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, are you or whoever is in Metapop, or if you're knowledgeable, to are they working also trying to do a similar thing with Shazam to get all those remixes that you're that Metapop is clearing to like get added to that service as well, or is that? Well, you see, there's two interesting things with what you're saying. One, the Beatport deal with Shazam ended while I was still at Beatport. Huh? Um, uh, Shazam needed Beatport more than Beatport needed Shazam. Uh, because Beatport had first access to millions of dance tracks and, and then had fingerprints for that audio. Mm -hmm. And people would be in the clubs, and this music was only available on Beatport. Um, and so the only way Shazam would work was as if Shazam could get access to the fingerprints uh. of this content early enough. Um, uh, and uh, that deal wound down because it, didn't drive any, frankly, it didn't drive any value for Beatport, so the work wasn't worthwhile. Um, uh, how so much work, man, just sure. Mind if I don't forget the question, but yeah. just to take a step back, how much work goes into creating, I guess, the code or whatever it is that Shazam needs so that they can, to create those fingerprints so, mm -hmm. so that Shazam can read So to it. create the, the, the fingerprints at, at sort of our end, we were doing anyway to create other value in our ecosystem. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what Shazam needs to do with their end. Mm -hmm. to, to, to make it work, but when you're selling music, the margins are so terrible mm -hmm. that any minute you are spending not making money is a mistake. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it's, it's any distraction from actually creating value for your users uh, is the wrong thing to be spending your time doing. In a, in a business where the margins are so low, uh, it's almost more important to keep reminding yourself of what you shouldn't be doing with your time 
and energy uh, than uh, even even asking yourself how much work is it. Uh, if it's not obvious that it creates value to your end users when you're in a business that on a good day has a five or seven percent actual margin, mm -hmm. uh, you know, is a sign that you know you're you're thinking about the wrong stuff. Mm -hmm. um, it's not that much work, but any work that is not direct user value is a problem. And you're saying that the users of the music, the listeners, mm -hmm. the consumers, they weren't shazamming enough and then reacting and buying? Is that what you... Well, you know, Beatport couldn't sell on mobile devices. Okay. Mm -hmm. They just didn't have the ability to... No do one so. does. Uh -huh. No one could sell on an iPhone except iTunes. Okay. No one. Uh, uh, you couldn't you couldn't purchase a piece of music from Beatport, TrackSource, or anywhere else mm -hmm. and download it into an iOS device. Mm -hmm. At the time of the deal, was Beatport only doing the lossless files also, like the WAV files? Beatport had both. They did have both. Yeah, lossless and high quality MP3. Okay. But then you you know your the second part of your question is what about bootleg or unauthorized remixes being recognizable. That's a fascinating challenge. Fingerprinting content, derivative work content mm -hmm. is a fascinating challenge uh, that no one has nailed yet. Although I would argue that probably the people who are best at it today and are destined to always be best at it because the volume of information they process is Google, YouTube. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, but it's interesting, so I, there's a lot of false results out there, and I like to listen to Simon and Garfunkel's Greatest Hits on Sunday mornings, mm -hmm. and um, my phone thinks that two Simon and Garfunkel bootleg remixes I have mm -hmm. are the originals, and so mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. save bandwidth and also for, to save royalties, I would imagine, they look for content on your device that they can play back to you as opposed to streaming the content so that they can uh, save money. Mm -hmm. So if they think, hey, we're about to play you this song on your device, they're going to go look on your device for the track first before pulling it from the cloud. And, and they keep replacing um, sounds of silence and uh, um, uh, uh, me and Julio down by the schoolyard uh, with bootleg remixes I happen to have on my device from friends. Uh, so it's even with the metadata and the recognition, it's, it's not there yet. But that's kind of what's fun about bootleg remixes and why they can sort of float under the radar sometimes. Hmm. Interesting. It's interesting. Okay. Yeah, it is. It is. Okay. So, so, so moving on more or less, I also wanted to touch on um, what I believe is your latest endeavor at Native Instruments. Correct me if I'm wrong. Sounds.com? Sounds.com is uh, my favorite thing of the moment. All right. I mean, I've personally used Sounds.com, so I know what Thank it is. Thank you. Yes. Um, it's, it's, very fun. it's very fun to use, in my opinion. Uh, I've, had a, I've had a lot of fun getting mostly drums. Uh, love, hmm. love getting. Well, what it is is. Um, uh, shall I explain? Do you want to explain or? I, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Okay. It's a it's a subscription service for loops and samples for music creators to use. Uh, anyone who's got GarageBand or any other DAW like Pro Tools or Ableton knows that those they come with loops and samples that are copyright free that you can use to make your own music. Yep. Uh, and in fact. Uh, I think sort of the, the flow, the funnel of music creation in the digital space is frequently people DJ first. They learn to make a loop out of something that they really like. And then the next step is they want to try to create their own song or track. And they do so with cut and paste mm -hmm. techniques, which is how the internet works. Mm -hmm. And and so uh, 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 with Native Instruments, uh, uh, who owns Sounds.com and I work for, is 
the largest manufacturer and seller of uh, software-based instruments and effects uh, in the market and has a robust business of selling uh, loops and samples uh, to the users of our hardware and software. And we decided to scale that. And so we've built a marketplace that have, has over 300 providers in it. And the end user subscribes, and for their subscription fee, they get access to a certain volume of these loops and samples. And when they download these loops and samples, they are theirs. You can take three of them, glue them together end to end. It wouldn't be a very interesting track, but you could do that, yeah. and then copyright it and call it your own song. Um, uh, so it's mm. the raw material people use uh, for making music. And there are... There are people who have had hit records, I'm not gonna name them, mm -hmm. just using the free loops that come with GarageBand. I mean, this is not uh, just a beginner behavior. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's uh, especially if you say, if you're a great drum programmer, but not a great guitar player, you know, you can write a great uh, construct of a song and then go and get the right guitar loops from sounds.com or somewhere else uh, to fill out your production. So the question I had, um, one question I had in relation to sounds.com was, um, is it fair to draw a correlation between that and Beatport sounds, which we're, we're definitely so. competitor. Uh, when I we launched Beatport sounds when I was there, right. we acquired a much smaller provider of that, and we launched the Beatport sounds vertical while I was there, right. uh, and uh, it still exists, I think. Uh, and uh, to some extent, sounds.com is a competitor, um, but it's a pretty different value proposition. Right. Uh, and for us, it's the beginning, it's really just the, the beta dipping our toes into what's gonna be a much broader strategy for us, lowering the barriers to entry for music creators. We wanna lower the barriers in terms of complexity and cost. Uh, and at Native Instruments, we believe that growing our business doesn't just mean selling more stuff to the people we already talked to, but we think we can create millions of more musicians by, uh, by unfragmenting the market and improving the creative workflow. What type of, when you're saying musicians, are more of the digital musician? You, well, obviously, I mean, we're not talking about somebody who's gonna learn how to play guitar. It's, I, I, and I'm not discounting that type of musician, mm -hmm. I'm just, I want it to be clear that the musicians you're talking about are the digital well, and, and I mean, anyone, me who's, anyone who's working in a DAW at this point is a digital musician. Mm -hmm. Even if you play guitar, right. you're effectively recording yourself and making an, a digital audio file of right. yourself playing guitar. So uh, anyone who's working in a DAW, Native Instruments uh, customers historically are house musicians, techno musicians, hip hop musicians, but also uh, people who do scoring, jingles. Um, and, and actually, if you're a guitar player, but not a drummer, mm -hmm. um, the opposite is true that you, know, that you could uh, you know, play a few licks on the guitar and then you need a beat behind it, and you should be able to, you, you can use a service like ours too and come and get drum loops mm -hmm. so that you don't have to be your own drummer. So uh, we see our offering as being valuable to anyone who is working in a DAW, regardless of the genre or instrumentation. Uh, and in fact, Native has uh, this incredible product that's been around for a while that I don't know any guitar player who works in a DAW that doesn't use it that's called Guitar Rig. Uh, and one of the things it does is, uh, regardless of the actual instrument you're using, it, it emulates sounds. And so it's valuable to people who play guitar and it's also valuable to people who don't play guitar but want to mimic the guitar on a, on a keyboard. Mm -hmm. 
The reason I bring up the question is uh, we've been having multiple discussions on and off as uh, professors, employees of a, of a college music program. And the, the program is a traditional program in that on the music side, they're teaching how to hold the flute, how to mm -hmm. blow properly into the flute, the traditional instruments. This is traditional in that this is here, this is happening now, yet it's non-traditional when yeah. you compare it to your conservatory model. Mm -hmm. And this is, and the reason I'm, I'm going in this direction is because this is the direction, to me, it feels like the creation of music is headed or is at a mass scale compared to the, the person who maybe 20 years ago would have come up to play guitar mm -hmm. or drums or flute. Now they're not doing that because they're probably utilizing the digital software. Yeah, ask Gibson. Yeah, yeah their th that's it. And that's- a guitar world, yeah. uh, a guitar center. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, John Lennon saw a rockabilly skiffle act and asked his aunt to buy him a guitar at the five and dime. Uh, I believe now kids see Diplo or Skrillex at a festival and they ask their parents for a drum machine or a DJ rig. Mm -hmm. uh, that is the, the un rap rappers too. Yeah, undoubtedly yeah. where where things are are headed right now. Uh, and I, I think that's incredibly empowering. When I was when I was in a punk band as a kid, uh, we had to save up money to go to a recording studio. And sure. actually, Steve Albini. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with yeah. him. Steve. Yeah. Steve was a college student in our hometown then. He hmm. recorded our punk band when he was a college student and uh you know it required steve knowing how to plug stuff in there were a ton of cables sure. uh, and then when i was then not that much older but it felt a long time later trying to make sample based music for the first time there were still a ton of cables and a ton of different things i had to figure out and now it's all in the box as they say it can be all in the laptop it's removed a lot of complexity and it's removed almost all the cost you, do, you know, you going to a big studio at this point is a luxury mm -hmm. that I think is probably unnecessary for almost every record yeah. I love. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I will say, though, that my, my favorite band of the last few years is a band that uh, records everything analog. It's all analog instruments. Um, and, you know, as soon as you have a horn section, okay, maybe you need a room with some good carpet mm -hmm. on the walls. Um, Who's your favorite band that you talking about? Portugal, the man makes me so happy. It just uh, makes me cry. Hmm. It's right. it's improved the quality of my life uh, dramatically. And I got to say, it's a it's here's a sign of how disconnected I am. <laughs> I uh, am embarrassed to say that I didn't even know that they existed before the album that came out last year. Mm -hmm. I love it so much. I haven't listened to a full album straight through like that since the Stone Roses' first album. Right. So it's been a, many many years. Yeah, and. Uh, Portugal the Man have been around for 10 years, hmm. and I didn't know. And I, I've gone back now and listened to every record, and I love them all. I would have loved, I mean, I, I feel like I wasted 10 years not listening to Portugal the Man. How would you have heard it, though, 10 years ago, nine years ago, eight years ago? Well, they, so, they didn't have a hit back then. They did not have a hit. Exposed you to but I'm existence. mad at the young people who worked for me at Napster because they were usually pretty good yeah. at telling me uh -huh. I ran the music programming department and they would bubble up and they'd be like, I think this is something Matt would like and they'd throw it on my desk. So I blame them. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Right. I was curious, when you're making, uh, just as a, just a piggyback and just because I'm a nerd at this sort of thing, when you were doing sample-based music, what sampler were you? I had a Kurzweil oh. 2500, which was insanely expensive. Yeah. 
uh, a disaster of a user interface. Uh, I think you, I think it could store maybe five seconds of sampling time, <laughs> you know, without resetting the device. Um, that's why Ableton, and I started using Ableton at, at 1.5 or so, was so transformative. It turned everything I could put in the RAM on my machine into a viable sample. And then as processing power improved by like Ableton 5, it turned your entire hard drive into a real-time sampler, mm -hmm. um, which was just incredibly powerful and really good for copyright infringement. <laughs> <laughs> So one, so one question also piggybacking off of sounds.com, uh, specifically the subscription model. Um, do you think Native Instruments sees a value in expanding that model into its other line of products, such as the complete instruments or the reactor uh, effects and instruments? Like, mm -hmm. like you know how um, the Slate Digital Everything bundle works mm -hmm. where Slate does their subscription program for all of its mixing uh, mm -hmm. plugins as well. Do you think Native Instruments would do that for theirs, and it wouldn't affect me because I already own Complete Ultimate 11, mm -hmm. so just put that out there. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> without divulging where we're going strategically, I'll say you sound like a pretty smart guy. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll take that. By the way, we had a, uh, when Matt was an undergraduate student at William Patterson University, we had a rap battle at the school, which was run by a uh, music business organization we have called Mio. And he won the rap battle over all these I, other. I, I forgot about. Wow, is that on YouTube? He did. He won it. You know, at the time it happened, I kept trying to find footage, and no one had any footage of it happening yeah. for whatever reason. That, only, that may only, prove to be a blessing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. True. The only the only proof I have of it is uh, Jada Kiss was one of the guest judges, and I got a picture with him at the end. Of oh, it. That's, that's awesome. That's the only proof right. I have. That's awesome. But that's, that's a great story. That's what I have. Um, so. Again, talking about I sound. remember that, man. <laughs> yes. no, that was fun, though. I will say that was fun. Um, so talking, actually, uh, question, another question about sounds.com mm -hmm. is um, you, people have asked you in the past about incorporating it directly into the machine hardware, mm -hmm. where I suppose you would go into the browse section on the controller, and then you would just be able to like browse the whole database mm -hmm. through the cloud on, on the controller itself. Mm -hmm. um, my, uh, my question was, I was curious if there was any intention at all of doing it for the iMachine app, which I don't know how heavily supportive Native Instruments is on the mobile production side of things. Mm -hmm. I, was just, I was just curious if they had any intent of doing that sort of thing for iMachine as well. Well, again, not speaking to, to our future strategic intent, um, uh, uh, you sound like a smart guy, and uh, we should talk about whether you're ever interested in being a product owner at Native Instruments. Product owner? That's what the product owner is a very specific role uh, it, uh, that uh, at tech companies, it's the non-software development person who works with the team to help define the product that uh, the software development teams are building. And uh, I would have to say, yes, what you just said sounds like a very good idea. Okay. <laughs> I bet on the inside he's jumping up and down, <laughs> trying to be as cool as possible, you know. Because it's funny, I was just going to say, how do people get a job doing this besides going to a music business conference and having you come and interview you for a music biz 101 and more radio show? Uh, well, uh, you know, the, uh, at, at my, my division department at Native Instruments, the digital services group, is largely a, a digital product development organization. Mm -hmm. And in Berlin, we have our, our core products where they build all 
the, the musical instruments effectively. My department, uh, the, the way you can tell the difference between our core products group and my group is my group doesn't build instruments. Mm -hmm. We build services, service layers around uh, the needs of people who use instruments. And, uh, but both, both departments are largely software developers. There's C++, there's React developers, there's HTML developers, there's people who specialize in setting up scalable databases. And so we have a lot of people uh, who've done that kind of work uh, all over the place, in the aerospace industry, in the insurance industry, um, who uh, frequently find us because they love, they also make music as a mm -hmm. side hustle or a, a side passion. Uh, and eventually come and uh, bring their skill set skill set to us. In my department, I like to get people uh, who are both familiar with the category we're involved in, as well as some people who are distinctly not familiar with the category we're involved in, um, so that uh, our teams can think about things in unique ways. Uh, I always want our products to be easier to use, uh, but really deep and rich for mm -hmm. pros. And if you want things to be easier to use, hire people who don't know how to use them yet. Yeah. Um, but if you hire people, you know, if you hire professional musicians, they're already nerded out, mm -hmm. you know, right away. So, uh, so at Native, actually in Los Angeles, uh, the office in LA has gone from, in about a year since I joined, has gone from about 40 people to about 85 people. We'll be over 120 people by the end of the year. Uh, and you've been there for how long? A year and two days, two months, a year and two months. Wow. So it's what's that two hundred percent growth? I, I guess yeah. My, so I'm not forty good at to math. eighty, and then uh -huh. another forty, yeah. hundred fifty percent yeah. growth. Whatever you say. You're a professor. I'm <laughs> not. Because <laughs> <laughs> my next question, because I was going to ask you about company growth, uh -huh. and um, the number. I'm going back to this whole, the culture of, of change going on in the, musician industry. Basically, you know. Um, so how many users do you have and are you seeing tremendous growth? And do you, do you, are you looking at users? What, what are you calculating? I don't know if, I, if my question is very good. You know you're doing better with guitar sales if you sell more guitars. Mm -hmm. um, with you, do you have more people coming in and using the product and you can count how many more it is this year compared to last year? Or Yeah, I mean, well, so on the sounds.com front, because sounds.com didn't exist last year, mm -hmm. it always looks great compared to last year. Right. Um, so we're growing astronomically. Yeah. Uh, uh, sounds.com, if it was a brand new startup, Mm -hmm. uh, the numbers are just absolutely nothing short of incredible. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there's a real business there already yeah. you know, that we're really proud of that I think without being part of Native Instruments wouldn't be where it, you know, where it is today. Mm -hmm. um, the different parts of the ecosystem are judged in different ways. You know, obviously with traditional software for instruments and effects and hardware, it's did we sell more of it? You know, yeah. and then a key metric, uh, the KPI, key performance indicator for the business is always, did someone buy the next one? Did they upgrade? You know, are we retaining that, that mm -hmm. user? Uh, but in my world, um, the KPIs, if you will, are, are different for each different sort of product or offering. So for instance, at Metapop, Metapop doesn't sell people anything today. Mm -hmm. There is, uh, Metapop has zero, uh, direct-to-consumer revenue, has some revenue in other ways, but the, we don't ask people to pay anything. And so we measure Metapop by new users 
and the engagement of those users. How frequently they're returning and how much time do they spend enjoying the mm -hmm. value of Metapod. Mm -hmm. uh, at sounds.com, uh, we're measuring how many people can we get to sign up for a free account because then at least we can talk to them on mm -hmm. an ongoing basis and, and try to upgrade them later. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, then how many people have signed up for an account. And then uh, uh, in any subscription environment, the, the big metric is churn, how many people canceled. Mm -hmm. Uh, is you know always what you're keeping an eye on. Uh, and then uh, we also operate in my department, nativeinstruments.com. Uh, and there you're measuring customer satisfaction around customer support requests mm -hmm. or, uh, or engagement around are people educating themselves about how our products work. So it's different, it's a different measurement depending on what you think the end user wants to achieve. Okay. You know, I actually did want to ask in regards to uh, customer feedback with sounds.com because mm -hmm. I know that was something, um, and not not to make too many comparisons between sounds.com and your time at Beatport, but I but one of the main things that I remember you had to deal with as CEO of Beatport was everyone complaining that the top 10 charts were rigged. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't really seen that in relation to sounds.com's top 10 loops. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, have you been, like what was the main tone of feedback that you've been receiving as far as the um, the, the top loops that you know are put on like the front page? Well, uh, have you been getting feedback at all? I haven't or? really gotten a lot of feedback about that yet. And honestly, I'm not sure how important the top 10, top 100 charts are for people who need to consume this kind of stuff. Right. We're still learning. I will say though that we know that there's a virtuous cycle where if something charts, it gets consumed more. So people are looking at those charts for recommendations. Right. Um, uh, it's not, not just Beatport, anywhere that has a content consumption measurement metric that is displayed in some way, SoundCloud followers, YouTube plays, that someone's gonna start a business in India that charges people to game those systems. Uh, and uh, uh, Beatport uh, is not alone. I mean, I'm, right now you, there's a lot of articles about all these farms that will write positive reviews for your products on Amazon. All that stuff, people try to game it, and you have to ask yourself how much time and energy you're gonna put towards trying to thwart that behavior or creating real value for end users over here. The, the, in my experience, charts are not rigged, they are gamed. Um, SoundCloud, YouTube, Beatport, Amazon, Napster, we would all prefer that our recommendation systems be accurate because mm. it's good for our business and, and trust with the end user is important and if that trust is violated, it's a freaking bummer. Uh, but uh, rigged would seem to indicate that people at the, at the platform level are deciding what should be there and, and instead what, what frequently happens is they're gamed because you have people spending a bunch of money basically buying their own content in order to chart. And by the way, mathematically, it's a great investment. Um, uh, so I don't, I understand why it happens. And it used to happen, by the way, at retail, um, you may remember, uh, but uh, before SoundScan, mm -hmm. they used to just call right. retailers and say, how many right. copies of Hoozy What's oh, It did you sell? Uh, um, I used to do that with Polygram. Mm -hmm. I would call and then I would say, what do you need? And I would send them promos and things so that they would, if radio called the record store, for example, right. so the record store would tell them my polygram stuff. Exactly. Best. Right. And there's two, yeah. there's two, the big way that labels were gaming that and they knew they were, was they would send people in to buy the stock. Mm -hmm. um, I did that. Uh, and by the way, then they'd return it 
after the reporting sure, period sure. was over. Uh, and then the, the, the promo thing back then was, I, so I worked at new and used record stores, mm -hmm. you know, where you would also buy used records. And there's zero doubt in my mind, uh, please don't take offense, that when you were sending those people promos, it was the closest thing you could do to sending them cash. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, because they filled a box and they brought it to my store every Friday, and, uh, yeah. and I bought that stuff and then resold it yeah. uh, to consumers. Um, uh, there was also, back in the day, a lot of return fraud. Um, uh, you, yeah. If you worked at a record store and someone uh, brought in a copy of Thriller, which, by the way, the um, barcode was pre-barcodes. The spine number for Thriller was 84118. Uh, I remember because I worked at a place where you had to write it down. Uh, oh. And uh, I remember that one very well. And, uh, but if someone brought that record in and sold it, Mm -hmm. uh, you'd buy it for a dollar, let's say, and uh, places like that would then go to the one stop, the distributor, the regional distributor, and return it for a full credit. Yeah, and and there would be people getting bribed and kickbacked, kickbacks all the way through that. Yeah. There's a great whole chapter in that book, Hitmen, yeah, about right. people about who that. were conspiring around around these return scams. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I actually, there's, a, there's an upside to digital is, it, is that it's, it's made that kind of corruption more difficult. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's actually a plug for that book, Hitman. We spoke with, I was watching that interview with Mark Robinson, who's the mm. chief uh, legal affairs, business affairs guy with 300 Entertainment. And he was talking right. uh, to Steve Leeds about Hitman and talking about um, you know, how that whole industry, right. he, when he was growing up, late 80s uh, in the industry, that was part of it. And he worked with Yol Walter Yetnikoff, mm -hmm. who was running uh, CBS Records yeah. at the time. The so. uh, converse of that was true, too. And I guess it was the 90s when Mariah Carey, went, uh, when her husband, uh, Matola, was running uh, CBS Group, or Sony Group, whatever it was called at that time. And that her matrix number just happened to appear on a ton of different albums as an error, you know, the by definition error. Right. It's always, uh, in a, we always say that when you do a royalty uh, audit, then it should be by definition 50% should be towards you and 50% should be towards the company in terms of the errors. However, I've never met an no, artist. Never, who had got an error in favor. more than he should have gotten. Never. You know, so this was the same principle. Yeah. That it would just, I mean, you just, Corruption, and that's the one thing we always say Dan Eck did, is he, he stopped all this at point of purchase. Mm -hmm. and, you know, saying he ruined point of purchase. Well, he, yeah, he ruined the old way of point of purchase, right? right. right. So. And Dan Eck is Daniel Eck, who runs Spotify. Correct. So, <laughs> also piggybacking off of another question about um, the growth of the company, would you consider the uh, producer content on sounds.com as an area of growth? Like, if you're able to get more producers to, um, I guess, give you the sounds mm -hmm. to distribute, would that also be like a metric of growth that you uh, oh, yeah, That's a great question. So, yeah, I mean, we're a marketplace, uh, and so we need, we need to please and grow the consumption and the supply side, uh, absolutely. And so we're always, and that's actually why I'm here uh, at this conference, is to work with traditional labels and help them understand how uh, a platform like sounds.com that they haven't participated in, in the past can be beneficial to their business and their brands. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Great question. Yeah. Um, 
So another question I have um, is relating more so to your role as the uh, chief uh, chief digital officer. Because mm -hmm. um, I was reading, uh, I have, was yeah. reading an article about Forbes where they quoted they had they're they're quoted as saying even when loosely defined the digital role is performed by the chief customer officer, chief innovation officer, or chief technology officer. There is also overlap with the chief marketing officer and chief operating officer. So how many of those roles are incorporated into your role, like on a daily basis, would you, <laughs> would you say? Well, I, I mean, honestly, the divisions are arbitrary. Uh, and uh, titles at, at any company, I think, generally should be a reflection of uh, who can do what and how the company is mm -hmm. organized and what are, are the company's goals. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, we are still figuring out at Native Instruments uh, uh, how to best take advantage of all the incredible talent we have at the company. We're about 500 people now. Mm. It's a lot of people, a lot of smart, talented people, a lot of people a lot smarter and more talented than me. Uh, and you're always in an organization like that trying to figure out what's the right way to be organized to take advantage of all, yeah. not take advantage of, to, <laughs> to utilize all this, mm -hmm. this great skill you have in house. Uh, I, uh, I, happen, I happen to have two jobs. I'm the only C-level executive outside of Berlin. And so I'm also the head of the Americas mm -hmm. uh, and uh, helping to manage that office and empower people and mentor everyone, even those who don't report to me in, in the Los Angeles office. Uh, so I, the CDO is just a, uh, an honorific, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, we're always sort of adjusting our organization to try to achieve our goals. And I think any company who thinks their org structure is perfect uh, is is not going to succeed in the future. <laughs> because they're mm -hmm. going to be out of business yeah. before you know yeah. it. Just yeah. L.A. And, and Berlin are the two offices, or do you have more offices in the U.S. L, than L.A.? Uh, in the U.S., we have some people who work from home mm -hmm. across the country, but as a... Uh, Native Instruments is a, is a global company. Mm -hmm. And uh, wherever we hit a critical mass of being able to sell our hardware and software products, we usually open a regional office that's a regional sales and marketing office. Um, you know, there's a guitar center equivalent mm -hmm. in every major market in the world. And uh, we've learned that we can do a much better job servicing our musician customers by putting people on the ground. So we have people, uh, People from the LA office cover all of Central and South America, but there's a Toronto office, there's a Paris office, there's uh, an office in Japan with some really awesome guys in it. Uh, and then we have an office in China where they're doing regional sales and marketing as well as helping to manage our manufacturing, which happens there. Good question, because you just said the word guys, and I'm not, what would you say the split is in this genre between female and male? Well, it's a really good point, and, and actually, I, I appreciate that you pointed out I said guys. And I wasn't going at no, you for no, that. No, uh, no, it comes up, though. It feels like it's more of a male-driven thing, but am I wrong? You're not wrong, and it needs to change. Mm -hmm. And part of the way it can change is people like me being more careful with our language. Right. Mm -hmm. it, it is a big deal. Uh, when I accidentally say guys, I am accidentally uh, telling more than half the population they're not welcome. Mm -hmm. And that's not cool. And I'm actually really glad you pointed it out. Uh, I think I've gotten better at it. Um, but, you know, I have, a, I have a tendency to call people dude 
still and brother if I'm really feeling friendly with someone. And I actually, I posted to Facebook a while ago asking my friends, like, what is this other word I can use that's gender neutral, but still says, hey, I feel some level of intimacy with you. Mm -hmm. um, I really, I do find myself blurting out brother every now and then. I've never said to someone's sister. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, <laughs> see, like, I guess, well, we work in the same department, music department, and the, uh, the chair office now is all women. And you open up the door and you go, what are you guys doing today? Mm -hmm. And only, not those women, but other women have said, because I've approached them with saying, you know, that's just the, and several women have said, no, yeah. it's not. I really get offended when people, I said, well, then you should really start being vocal, <laughs> which they are, of course, but start being vocal <laughs> about that because it's just what you're saying. It's just, that's the way it's been said. And yeah, it's wrong. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, it's not it's not the job of the marginalized to end their own marginalization. Yeah, yeah. It's actually I'm sitting in a room here, yeah. those who are listening, I'm sitting in this room with five white guys. And yeah, uh you. Yeah. yeah. And uh uh we gotta make a change. One of the things I'm really proud of one of the reasons I was so excited to join Native Instruments is I've known the founders for a long time. They were B port shareholders. And uh, but uh, diversity and inclusiveness is really important to me. And uh, I knew it was important to the founders when I got there. Sorry, this going on the side thing, but... This is good, though. Uh, uh, but um, uh, we've, we've made really great progress uh, in the LA office in terms of uh, diversity. Mm -hmm. You'd have to ask members of marginalized groups how I'm doing on inc inclusivity. Um, diversity is getting people in the door. Inclusivity is making them feel welcome. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but we've made, I, you know, even in the music space, uh, in the music tech space, you know, it's been largely a bunch of white of guys yeah. and it's toxic. Yeah. And, uh, I, I've made it my business along with my colleagues to make a dent. Um, we have, uh, worked really hard with a, a group called Girls Who Code. They chose the world girls, not me, uh, and we, group, we tried know. to hire people from from there. Uh, but it's uh, uh, it's something we all need to do. But so in re relation to your question, actually, we most of our customers are men, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we know uh, that uh, more inclusive language would help. Uh, but we also know that. Uh, 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 women uh, tend to enter music creation through different ways. We've done surveys around this. I mean, the last thing we want to do is release a pink controller, right? Like, mm -hmm. here's a drum machine for women, it's pink. That's the dumbest thing, right? Uh, just like that big pen for ladies on Amazon yeah, yeah, that's yeah, pink yeah. pen, because that's right. insane, right? But but women do t have a tendency to enter music creation through, through vocalizing, through singing. Yes. Uh, uh, and not from joining bands, and yeah. that's probably because bands are also sexist sure. and uh, non-inclusive. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we, our, our mission and vision is to, to expand that, and uh, as we improve diversity in our workforce, hopefully our products will come to reflect that. But if you go to Guitar Center, you see it too. I mean, I don't think it's just us, mm -hmm. but, uh, but just because it's normal doesn't make it okay and doesn't make it yeah. something we can't help change yeah and this yeah. has been great and we have to right. change direction and not talk anymore because we've run out of time that's okay. great hopefully we can make room for someone else to talk yeah <laughs> <laughs> this is great. It's perfect. so we need to thank yeah, matthew we... adele 
for being yes. here with us today. Thank you. Much appreciate. And Matthew Kerr, thank you for asking one yes. or two decent questions. The rest was crap. No, oh. but thank you. No, it was great. <laughs> great yes, Thank you very much. So, right. this is, so this is the end of Music Biz 101 or more. At the end of every show, we do not say hello, because it's the end of the show. That'd be stupid. So at the end of every show, we say, adios! Say, hey Dave, what do Paul Sinclair from Atlantic, Tom Hefter from Ticketmaster, Rosie Lopez from Tommy Boy, and Heather Ellis from Pandora all have in common? They're all bigwigs in the music and entertainment industry, Esteban. And? They all hate warm beer. And? They've all been guests on the Music Biz 101 and More radio show at 8 o'clock on Wednesday nights. Bingo. If you want to learn more about the music and entertainment biz, tweet in a question and tune in every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock to Music, music Biz 101, 101 and More on Brave New Radio. radio. Oh.